Hello and welcome to V&A Dundee. We're an international design museum showcasing the brilliance of Scottish creativity and the best of design from around the world. The following audio was recorded live at V&A Dundee as part of our public programme. If you'd like to come along to our next event, head over to the website for details. Hi everybody um, and thank you for joining us this evening for what I know will be a really wonderful talk. Um, my name is Joanna Maudsley and I am Head of Learning at V&A Dundee. Um, having recently opened just a few weeks ago, uh, we've really enjoyed visitors coming into our museum, flinging open the doors to see our current exhibition, Night Fever, Design and Club Culture. It's been an absolute joy to see so many people of different ages, enjoying themselves and engaging with the exhibition in so many different ways. As I'm sure we all know, clubs are critical parts of our cities and towns, often colonise and forgotten buildings and spaces, redesigning them and reimagining them for a new generation. The exhibition of Night Fever looks back and by doing so, it encourages us to look to the future and, and wonder what might come next. This exhibition positions clubs not just as a critical part of culture, but of society more widely. They are really vital spaces, part of the, of the rich fabric of what makes us all creative, expressive and connected human beings and often herald positive change. We're so pleased to take this opportunity as Scotland's Design Museum to shine a light on why clubs matter so much to design history, to the present and of course to the future. We would, of course, always like to thank all of our audiences, partners, members and donors for their continued and ongoing support. I'll now pass over to my colleague, Nicole, who will welcome our wonderful speakers for this evening's talk. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for the lovely introduction, Joe. Uh, my name is Nicole Keane and I'm the creative programmer here at VNA Dundee. Tonight we are going to be joined by two entertainment and music legends. Ian Schrager is the co-curator of the world-famous nightclub Studio 54. He's gone on to revolutionise the entertainment, residential and hospitality industries. He's been creating spectacular experiences where design, technology and music meet for a lifetime. Joining Ian is Benji B, a Radio 1 DJ, music director of Louis Vuitton menswear and the founder of Deviation Club Nights and Record Label. Their conversation is going to be followed by an audience Q&A. Before I invite them to join us, I just wanted to draw your attention to some of the Zoom functions we're going to use tonight. We encourage you to ask questions throughout using the Q&A function. And as I mentioned, we're just going to address all of those at the end. If you'd like to use the closed caption function, you just need to enable that on your bottom bar. And details of how to use these functions have been posted in the chat. And finally, if you're going to talk about this event online, which we definitely encourage, please do tag us at VA Dundee and use the speaker social links which have been posted in the chat. Um, that is it from me. So without further ado, I'm really happy to welcome Ian Schrager and Benji B on screen. Hi, Benji. Thanks very much, Nicole. How are you doing? I'm okay. Good. Hopefully we'll get Ian's video on in just a second. Hey, Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi. Just need to unmute you. Thank you. Hi Benji, how are you? Hey Ian, I'm doing well, how are you? Great, thank you. Where am I talking to you from today? I'm in the, uh, at the beach, uh, uh, right outside New York, a couple of hours outside New York, at home. Amazing, I mean, 
you, you already know that I'm a student of uh, nightlife and club culture. So for me, this is a very special talk and, and an opportunity to to ask you all the questions that I wanted to ask after I saw the Studio 54 film. And um, we're going to do our best to try and get as many in as we can. Obviously, um, hopefully everyone watching this talk is aware of your incredible career in hospitality um, and nightlife. And we have a limited time. So I don't think we're going to be able to cover everything. But as the um, VNA exhibition is entitled Night Fever, uh, Designing Club Culture from 1960 until now, I think it's it, it feels appropriate to dive straight into to Studio 54, straight away, um, if that's okay with you. Of course, this is Benji. Okay, cool. So, I mean, where do we start with Studio 54, apart from to acknowledge that for all of us in nightlife, it really is beyond folklore. It's sort of like the Woodstock of club Clubland, isn't it? It's like people talk about it with that kind of, if you were there um, feeling with good reason. And I think one of the things that people don't often look at with Studio 54 is the time frame. Um, the fact that it was only 33 months in its, uh, in its lifespan. And, and I once heard you uh, refer to Studio 54 as like holding onto a lightning rod. Um, in, and that's make sort of really puts over the intensity of it. And, um, you know, I think there's for sure been great institutions of nightlife that have lasted much longer, but maybe arguably haven't made as much impact as Studio 54. So maybe we could start with you setting the scene of the time in New York and also talking about the time frame and the lifespan of the club itself and whether that short lifespan of three years sort of amplified um, its influence on culture. Yes, well, New York at the time was in a sorry state. Uh, it had um, uh, uh, barely avoided bankruptcy. Uh, uh, it was um, uh, the infrastructure, everything was falling apart. Uh, and it was a kind of uh, uh, very depressing time in New York. As you know, Benji, when you go through a depressing time, uh, everybody looks for uh, an escape. Uh, everybody looks for something that can uh, cheer them up. Uh, but uh, also during that time, uh, it was uh, kind of, uh, there was a lot of unrest in Europe uh, as well. Uh, and um, so it seemed as if Europe had kind of tipped over and everybody that wasn't tied down or had roots in Europe rolled into New York. Right. And the same thing happened uh, with California. The country tipped over and everybody from California rolled uh, into New York. So if it was London's time in the 60s and Paris's time in the early 70s, this was New York's time. Uh, and um, so uh, we went over and uh, did studio. It was in a very bad section of town. Uh, we picked that section particularly uh, because we didn't think uh, we would have an adverse impact on our neighbors. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, and um, it was holding on to a lightning bolt. It was one of those natural hits that just hit the zeitgeist right in the bullseye, and it just took off uh, like a bat out of hell. Uh, but um, and for our younger viewers right now that uh, have visited New York and have an idea of what Fifty Fourth Street looks like, can you can you explain how different it was then? Can you paint a picture of West 54, from what I from what I gather, it was a pretty seedy kind of feeling up there. 
it was actually unsafe. No. Uh, it was uh, uh, populated by a, a lot of street people, um, uh, pickpockets and and uh, and uh, prostitutes, and it was uh, vulnerable to crime. Uh, it was an unsafe area. People who lived in New York didn't go there. Uh, you, you stayed away from it. But, you know, like every city, it goes like a river. It comes and goes and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, we felt it was the theater. We, we, we were in a theater. We took studio and put it in a theater. And that was the really the most um, compelling part of the idea. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear to me that from studio to the hotels you've created, it's fair to say that you are known as a master of the experience, an experience creator. And I think one of the things about sort of hospitality and club people is that they try to bring theatre into the club environment, but you literally brought a club into a theatre. Um, and that's something I understood a lot better after seeing the film um, and, and, and hearing like the lighting text talk and... And can you talk to us about how you really lent into that opportunity? Because you bought an old theater that still had the working light rigs and the auditorium. And how much did that play an element in what you chose to do in space? You know, Benji, it's so funny. It's, uh, like everything in life, there's always a certain amount of luck yeah. and opportunistic uh, opportunity in, in involved. Uh, when uh, at that time, when we went in and did Studio 54, the nightclub industry was a little bit like uh, uh, like in the garage phase. Yeah. And by that, I mean, you know, rock and roll started in the garage. Steve Jobs and Apple started in the garage. And that's where we were. There was only a couple of people doing. It was just when nightclubs were emerging. Uh, discotheques were just emerging. And when we decided we wanted to do one, um, a competitor of ours, uh, told everybody that he was working with not to work with us. And as a result of that, uh, we were obliged to go to another group of creative people who had never worked on a, a nightclub before. Right. And they happened to be Jules Fisher and Paul Morantz, uh, lighting designers that primarily worked in the theater and in architectural things. And that was the uh, a seminal event that changed everything because it was their idea. They came in and they saw the theater. Uh, we just liked it as a space, but the rigging was there. Uh, the, the ceiling was seven stories high. It had a proscenium arch. It had a balcony. Uh, and it was they who said to us, well, it's a theater. Yeah. Keep it as a theater. And it was Steve and I who then said, uh, we're going to make the people the stars of this show. Uh, and everything went on from there. I mean, you brought ice and wind and snow <laughs> and rain and all sorts of like theatrical elements into there. And, you know, I think for most people in nightlife in the wrong setting, that could feel, I don't know, uh, forced or, or cheesy or whatever. But it's whenever I see the footage of studio, it just looks like this natural theatrical, you know, immersive experience that complements the music, the lights, everything. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting to, to, to hear you talk about the importance of design specifically in club environments and, and how that contributes to everyone's night out? Well, it, it was, it's a devotion to excellence. Uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, whatever we did, we didn't do it halfway. We executed as perfectly as we could humanly possibly attain. Uh, 
and it was so well done. Uh, when you do something that runs the risk of being cheesy, yeah, uh, but it, it avoids it, it becomes very strong. And yeah. the execution of it, and the people that work there, and the creative minds that were involved were just, uh, you know, really, really great. And we were relentless about that. Yeah. And so, how many nights a week were you open at the peak of studio? Uh, we were open up six nights a week. We were dark on Monday, like the theater. <laughs> I mean, for those of us that have grown up in sort of, you know, often clubs are open on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or like, you know, or just on the weekend or whatever. I mean, six nights a week. How do you even maintain that from a stamina point of view and, and create a unique experience every night? Well, it was difficult. <laughs> uh, and uh, to, to, to maintain the high level of the experience, to not lessen our commitment to excellence and to continually attract uh, people in the know and sophisticated people that would enjoy it every night. Yeah. So it was, that's why there's not a lot of people who survive uh, owning and running a nightclub because it consumes uh, its owners. I'm one of the few people as you who have uh, survived it. Um, and uh, that was really the reason of it. So it was 33 very intense months, basically. Very intense. That's where the holding on to a lightning bolt. It was opening up the club, and from the minute it opened, it was feeding the monster every day. And so did, did the uh, cost of putting on these incredible shows and night experiences increase as your ambition increased? And... You don't, of course, have to, but how, how much would something like that cost? I mean, how did you afford to keep, to keep sort of like fulfilling everyone's expectation, especially the regulars that had, you know, were, were there many nights in one week? Well, you know, the actual execution of the light show and the general experience was always the same and kept the same in terms of the commitment to excellence and the money spent. Right. You know, we had a big crew, uh, we had three people on the light rail in the back. We had uh, a lighting designer, a DJ. We had a lot of people working back there to be able to pull it off. Mm. But it was the parties. It was the special events where we would completely transform the place and take it someplace else. Uh, you weren't in studio anymore. You were a completely different place based upon some idea or theme. And that cost a lot of money and kept getting more and more money <clears throat> for 40 years ago. Some of those parties would cost three and $400,000 for the night, which wow. would be a few million dollars today for a one night party. It was there one night and gone by the next morning, mysteriously appeared and mysteriously disappeared because that was the way we kept it current and compelling and continue to wow the people by doing these extraordinary events and, and to keep upping uh, the, uh, the, the level of execution we did. Yeah. And one of the strongest feelings I get when I look at the images or, or hear you speak or watch the film or just hear the few people that I know that were lucky enough to attend, or I get this real feeling of freedom, like as the main sort of ingredients of the folklore in a way. Um, freedom to express yourself, freedom to be who you are, freedom on the dance floor, freedom in the party. And I think for those of us who experience the world now, like a more sort of surveilled or 
policed reality or whatever word you want to use, it's hard to imagine what it must have felt like and how important that element was to the legend of Studio 54. Could you explain to us what that feeling was like, uh, what the ingredients were that enabled that feeling and whether you think that that could ever be possible again in a major city? Well, I certainly feel that could be possible again uh, because I think, uh, you know, we are a species. Uh, we have the same instincts. Yeah. Uh, we require the same things. It has to be adopted and adjusted for the current time. Yeah. There weren't certain technologies then. There wasn't cell phones. But it could definitely be the same because I don't think we've changed in thousands of years. We're still the same human being. We're still the same creatures. Just have to find the, uh, uh, the, the kind of modern way of interpreting that. But I do think uh, that everybody has theories of why Studio was so successful. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, the whole reason for the door policy wasn't elitist. And it had nothing to do with money, but nothing to do with status. We were trying to get a bunch of people to come inside uh, that would not hinder anybody else's uh, ability to relax and have fun. Yeah, A little bit like people invite people to their home or to a dinner party. But it was that ability to feel absolutely free, find to feel it. protected, to feel you could do anything you wanted, provided it was legal, I now say for the record. But that freedom was what distinguished it. If there were celebrities there, nobody cared. Uh, if there was a woman... In a, in a ball gown and a tiara diamond headdress, dancing with a guy without a shirt on and jeans. Nobody cared. Everybody was there to have this feeling of complete protection, purity, and to be able to have fun without anybody gawking or bothering them. Yeah. And I consider that today in the hotel business the ultimate luxury, yeah. a new luxury, that freedom of uh, from hassles and distractions and and being harried it's it's the same thing we we respond to that same thing and that's what made studio so special mm. in my view how do you think like in this modern age of cell phones and and sort of celebrity culture and you know this polarized world that we're in what are the ingredients do you think that that of course you can never force it but what are the ingredients that give it the best opportunity to, to happen? Do you reckon that feeling of freedom, uh, that free space again? Well, it has to be absolutely egalitarian. Right. It's democratizing that freedom. It's making it available and accessible to anybody that gets it and, and appreciates it. You know, I don't think when we opened studio, that was the very beginning of the age of celebrity. You know, before celebrities, they used to be movie stars or, or ball players or actors and actresses and uh, artists. So we went through the various things. Uh, but, um, you know, then uh, it, it, none of that mattered when you were inside. Yeah. We assaulted your senses and you were there to have fun and a good time. And nobody cared. Nobody yeah. cared about anything. Uh, just having a good time. And I think that that's something that can always be done provided that you have the vehicle that encourages it. Uh, uh, and so you have some of that now mm. 
in some of the nightclubs in East Berlin. Yes. And sure. some of the nightclubs in Ibiza. For sure. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think we feel that freedom, that uh, unbridled mayhem and energy, um, which is just a contagious thing and that human beings love. Uh, you know, and, and I think another critical element of it was diversity. Yes. You know, not just a bunch of rich people, you know, but uh, a diverse group of people who aren't perhaps used to being together, that when you throw that diversity, it creates a spark, hmm. something combustible. You know, I've gone, I'm sure you've gone to parties where there's nothing but a bunch of rich people there and nothing more boring than that to me. Yeah, for sure. So those elements all kind of came together and it was the screening at the door unfortunately, uh, that created that partly. You know, it's, uh, it's not politically correct. It got a lot of people very aggravated at us and mad at us because we thumbed our nose up to the traditional power structure and the rich people. We didn't care about them. Uh, we just cared about having a bunch of really cool people in there having fun. And I think uh, one of the reasons an institutional resentment kind of cropped up because these big shots were coming there. No, yeah, they come in. I'm sorry. And they got pissed off. We got to talk about the door. We have to talk about the door policy because it relates to so many things, you know, obviously the funny stories as well, but really on a more serious level, it's like a social experiment, right? It's like social curation, which I can, I imagine you've pulled into nightclub spaces in your hotels and the kind of way that you want to curate the sort of people that would like to go to public or the addition or any of your properties over the years. Um, but obviously it is a polarizing thing. I mean, Andy Warhol um, famously said that the Studio 54 door, no, he said, Studio 54 was a dictatorship on the door and a democracy on the dance floor. Very well said. And um, this, I've got to show this photo. This is the this is the classic picture in the book that I just have. To, I have yes. to. I mean, obviously, this is not showing well on Zoom, but I mean, <laughs> that's the door of a nightclub. <laughs> uh, Benji, it was madness. I mean, did you ever go outside or did, was it only Steve that went outside? Did you ever no. break? No, uh, you know, uh, Steve was out there primarily, uh, but when Steve took a day or two off, I would go out there. Right. Uh, and it's kind of a very, very difficult process to say no to people. For sure. Uh, Steve was able to get away with it most of the time. I've seen Steve split up husbands and wives uh, and good friends. Yeah. Uh, that I look back now and it's just very difficult to say no and to be able to get away with it. But it really was done with an integrity. It was done to try and have a great party inside. And it was the same kind of discretion and judgment you use when you have a private party in your home. That's right. okay. When you do it in public, it uh, gets people aggravated. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess if you didn't get in, it feels incredibly elitist. And if you do get in, it feels like the great ingredients for a social experiment, maybe. I'm not sure. But um, I once did a, a lecture with Nile Rogers, um, you know, and undoubtedly, of course, Nile Rogers and Sheik, one of the composers that soundtrack the period of 77 to 80, the exact lifespan of, of, of Studio 54. Um, and he really did spend a lot of that lecture talk speaking about Studio 54. 
Um, and one of the funniest stories he's told was about the origins of the song uh, Freak Out, which was written um, by him and Bernard Edwards about not getting into studio the night of New Year's Eve when Grace Jones was performing, who I believe had personally invited them. And, and, and they couldn't get in and they went away and wrote this song. Could you tell that story? Well, it was, um, we had a New Year's Eve party. It was the first time that I myself was afraid that there were too many people in there. Yeah. I mean, we were packed in there like sardines. And it didn't help that Grace was three hours late <laughs> and on the stage. Uh, and it was the first time that I was um, anxious that, you know, deep boy, I hope I don't want anybody, anything anything bad to happen. It didn't, and we got through it, and it was fine. But uh, we learned the next day that Niall uh, didn't get in. And, of course, those kinds of mistakes did happen, and we were embarrassed by it. Uh, and um, but, but thank God, then he wrote the Le, the Le Freak. Um, but it was a funny thing because Niall is a good friend and an incredible talent. So funny. Forty years later, when we opened up the Times Square edition, we had Niall perform. Amazing, uh, yeah. Uh, and um, but we had those kind of things where um, real big shots, uh, real important people, uh, uh, were turned away. You know, the process has inherent mistakes built into it. For sure, yeah. Uh, it's unavoidable. Uh, and um, so, but, um, you know, those are all things that, uh, uh, you know, we had to kind of take in stride because Steve and I were from a provincial area of Manhattan, New York City, Brooklyn, and we were really ambitious and really driven for success. So all of those things... I suppose, were tolerable by us, provided it didn't interfere uh, with the successful arc that we had envisioned for the club. Mm. Well, it seems like a perfect moment to talk about Steve Rebell, um, the late Steve Rebell, who was your partner in Studio 54. You once described your relationship with him like a marriage. Um, and, I mean, from what I understand, he was the sort of more flamboyant character that was the face that you would often see outside or in shots in the press to do with Studio 54 and you were sort of more known as being in the cut a bit in the back and avoiding the spotlight a bit. Is that a fair summary? Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, do you think like that dynamic, that working dynamic, especially when it comes to passion projects that are very intense is a really good chemistry? It's perfect. You know what it is? The best partnership, just like the best marriage is when you complete the other person you're either married to or in a partnership with. Mm. You know, the funny thing about it, even I did our first nightclub in uh, in Queens. It was a little bit like having a show be out in the provinces to work out all the kings and take it into Manhattan. Uh, Son of Sam, a serial killer, put a damper on that uh, nightclub. But I remember the first night uh, we opened up uh, this nightclub, I went up to the DJ booth to play with the lights and Steve went to the bar to hang out with the kids from Queens. And we never had a formal agreement. 
We never had a very specific division of responsibility. We each just naturally gravitated to what we each felt comfortable with and loved. And that's the perfect makings and foundation of a great marriage or a great partnership. And that continued. You know, Steve loved uh, 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 doing the interviews, uh, dealing with the people, um, uh, and all of that kind of taking of bows that comes with that. Because I loved him, I, I never considered that he was taking anything from me. He was doing it because he was better at it. And I was doing what I was doing because I was better at that than him. But together, uh, it was uh, uh, the, the perfect storm. And we each gravitated to what we each loved doing. And uh, But it wasn't mutually exclusive. You know, Steve was like my instant census. Uh, Steve, what do you think of this? You yeah. know, he was out there, uh, but he was bright and, and tuned in and knew everything that was happening. Uh, and so uh, it, uh, we were 50-50 partners. You don't share 50-50 with someone that doesn't carry their weight. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, we both bounced off each other and, and, and um, I helped him, he helped me. Uh, I, I remember uh, Halston, uh, the fashion designer, uh, came in the first night and I was, Steve, here's Halston. Go get friendly with him. Uh, uh, <laughs> something maybe on the dance floor, something Steve would say, this isn't working. Okay, buddy, I'll take care of it. Yeah. There that must be so many times in your life where you know, the, the the kind of the Studio 54 is obviously always present in our minds, but it kind of comes up in popular culture. And the most recent one, of course, is is the the show, Holston. Um, what did you make of it and the portrayal of, of particularly that era and studio in particular? You know, uh, there was a lot of untruth in some of the things that they, they maintained, I guess, for dramatic sure. impact. But uh, what it did... Uh, 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 I thought that uh, uh, the, the actor really caught Halston, the way he talked, the way he smoked the cigarette. I mean, you know, he really, uh, the inflection in his voice, I mean, he was really, really great at it. And uh, it, um, it, uh, it made me realize how really uh, talented Halston was. And he had a gift. He had a great eye. Because all of the people that were in that film were really part of the creative powerhouse in New York at the time. Right. Elsa Peretti, Joe Eula, uh, uh, and, and the rest. Uh, and Halston was a part of that. Uh, and uh, what he did, his eye, his recognition of this and recognition of that, it was um, made me realize how really talented. Uh, Halston was probably the only real American aristocrat that I ever knew. Right. Uh, the other fashion people uh, that I that I knew uh, uh, were mere mortals, like Steve and I. Yeah. But Halston was truly an aristocrat, uh, and uh, he lived very grand, and you know everything about him, even the way he did his fashion shows, was really done like the great ateliers of Europe. I mean, he marched to his own drumbeat. So I'm glad people got to see that side of Halston. 
the other things like dying in an air duct and those things didn't happen. But that didn't really matter, I guess. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, the, the list of fashion designers and, and people obviously is like endless in the book. But do you think that, you know, apart from being it, the fact that studio was the place to go, do you think that there was a specific kind of um, symbiosis like between designers and the fact that you were so design orientated in the club and that a big element of what you were doing was aesthetic as well as like audio and you know do you think that played a part in who you attracted yes i think that the fashion designers by the way which were the stars of new york at that time that was the emergence of new york kind of trying to get a parody with London, uh, Milan, and Paris. They were just emerging then. And and the stars of the city at that time, the tastemakers, the people that set the cultural tone for the entire city were the fashion designers. Because at that time, it was very bohemian. It wasn't a city dominated by hedge fund people. Sure. It was a very bohemian place. Uh, and... Um, so when they came in and started frequenting the place, uh, it was um, like the good, house, good, good housekeeping seal of approval. This yeah. is it. This is the spot. Uh, and, um, and it's so funny, uh, Benji. When we first got started, I wasn't inspired at all by what other nightclubs were doing. I was inspired by the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so funny. Now... Uh, uh, while I'm working, I'm really inspired now by technology companies and the entertainment industry, where there seems to be a lot of fresh new ideas that that come out of it, particularly the technology industry. But but then, you know, uh, the royalty in New York was the fashion designers. Yeah, I mean. As a student of nightlife and club culture, I feel like we're all influenced by New York and the lineage of New York clubbing institutions, whether we're old enough or traveled enough to have experienced them or not. Um, I mean, if I had a time machine and I could pick one go and I, I could choose like the dinosaurs or Tudor England, I'd definitely choose that period in New York for sure. Because it's wow. like, because it's it's had such an influence. It's like the tidal wave of culture that we're still surfing now. And I think we've discussed so many of you know, the essential ingredients, the time that it was, the the socioeconomic conditions. But the thing I'd really love to talk to you about now is possibly the most important ingredient, which is the music and the music that soundtracked that period, not only in New York, but in your life. And uh, whether you could talk about the resident DJ at Studio 54, how long they would play for, um, you know, what was the predominant sound? Of course, we associate uh, 77 to 80 in New York with disco, but how would you describe the sound of Studio 54? And talk to me about some of your favorite oh, wow. from the time. The person that deserves the credit for that, by the way, uh, was the DJ that really was uh, the man at the studio, was Richie Kazar. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a cottage industry of everybody taking credit for a lot of things in and around the studio, but it was Richie. And uh, he used to play, there was a lot of things like... Uh, uh, 110 beats. Uh, they like to have 110 beats per minute. The, the really, the litmus test for us, we weren't trying to be uh, like an English pub. We weren't trying to have a very crowded room where people are drinking and socializing and talking. No. We wanted to have 
create a social mayhem. If the people weren't out on the dance floor, the music wasn't good. Because when the music is good, you can't sit still. You have to get out there. And that's it. Very simple. That's the criteria. And Richie was just really great at that. And, and, And we never... We never did anything that interrupted the party. We never did anything more, whatever kind of visual things or things we did to kind of what we call create a moment. It was no longer than a minute because we were afraid to stop the party because we were afraid we couldn't start it again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Always on a continuum like that. And the music, even now today in the hotels, Music is the most important thing because, you know, I think the things you smell and hear are things that stay with you and conjure up past times in the other senses. And so they're very important to us. And I think even now in the hotel, the music is just critical uh, and it kind of brings everything together. I think one thing that's really interesting as well, when I've heard people talk about that era, specifically in New York, um, which seems weird now almost, is that the clubs really was the place where DJs would break records, like songs would be, would live or die in the club. Like, and so in a way, the reaction of clubs like Studio 54 and others would like, you know, determine the success of a song and that it wasn't unusual to hear if a song was a hit song in the club, you could hear it many times in one night, which is also unusual now. Um, um, did, you know, the record companies used to bring us all the, the, the music to play, but we wouldn't play it unless we thought it was studio music, uh, no matter what. Uh, you know, we just think that we've forgotten, you know, that the reason for going uh, to a nightclub and getting on a dance floor, which is a little bit of a tribal kind of instinctive reaction, is to have great music. Yeah. And it's it because you don't have a lot of things that can distinguish your nightclub from other people's nightclubs. You have the same uh, liquor and various other things. And what you do have that's different is the experience and the music. It's just it's just critical, uh, and it sets the tone. Even today in the hotels, it's critical. I mean, I can't find it straight away here, but of course there's that iconic picture that many people even uh, that are joining us for this talk might know of Diana Ross in the booth with the mic, um, literally standing on the DJ booth. And it's that moment of energy that's captured makes me think about all the hundreds of other moments that weren't captured, you know, that you must have witnessed. Um, Were there some memorable performances that you can recall now that were really those... You, if you were there, we always used to like. We didn't really have performances as such. We had, you know, we were a party. We're trying to throw a party. But by the way, in that picture, uh, that was the night before. Even I went away on our uh, extended vacation. You can see me in that picture with my arm around Diana Ross, trying to prevent her from falling out of it. But I'm looking down. I don't look like I'm having a great time there. Uh, but Steve was, uh, of course. Um, but this was the night so, before your, uh, your... Before we went into the army. Before, yeah. Okay, I found it. Oh, there's another one. It's not that one. But 
Steve is there and I'm right there with Diana with my arm around her, but I'm looking down, not enjoying the whole uh, evening. There was another one there. But yeah. I, my favorite parties there were always the Halloween. Right. Always Halloween. Because it was, uh, uh, one of the people I worked with said, Halloween is when anybody could get into studio because all you have to do is put on a great costume. Right. Which was true, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but I always thought there were no holds barred. Uh, we really... It was just a lot of fun uh, doing the Halloween parties more than the other parties. Mm. New Year's Eve sometime was fun. Um, Valentine's Day uh, party in, a, in, in, in America uh, was always a, a little bit more difficult to execute. But Halloween was the best because we really didn't have performances as such. Yeah. This was participatory. Like impromptu PAs, basically. Like people yeah. jumping on the mic kind of thing, you know. And 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 how many nights would the resident DJ play every night? Uh, Richie played four or five nights a week, and and that's all night, right? That's like eight hours or something, right? You know, he would be a little calmer the other nights. Yeah, but you know, a DJ is a performer, so when you have the crowd, when you're controlling a couple of thousand people, and you're getting whoops. And it's like, and the dance floor is packed so that all those people look like one organism, you know, like a heartbeat. Yeah. I mean, it's a turn on. Uh, and, uh, but during the week, you know, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday were very, very, very busy. Uh, and uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Sunday were less busy. They were busy, but uh, uh, it didn't have the same kind of, uh, mayhem that Thursday, Friday and Saturday had. Right. And so I know that this is like a difficult question. I wouldn't want to be asked it myself about music, but if you had to pick a few records from the era, like just the ones that come up, not the favorite of all time, but just records that really sum up the spirit of Studio 54, what would some of them be? Well, one of my favorite songs from that, that time, even though I don't like to talk about it because it has a bad connotation, was White Line. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I just love the bass. I love it. You know, it's just very difficult. It's just a very cool kind of thing. And maybe, maybe it's one of the first rap songs, by the way. Sure. But it just has a great bass, real, you know, real grounding thing. Of course, you know, I love um, um, uh, uh, I Will Survive by Gloria uh, um, um, Gaynor. And I love uh, both Teddy Pettigrass and uh, and um, Thelma Houston's um, I Don't Leave Me This Way. Uh, there are others, but there are a few that really, really stand out to me. Yeah. So I guess like, you know, bringing it into the now, not just pandemic related question, of course, but like in general, what have you observed as the sort of changing attitudes and opinions towards clubbing amongst the new generations? And do you think that your lineage of sort of dynamic design within nightclubs will play a part in, or could play a part in the next generation of club life? I, I definitely think so. I don't think there's going to be any difference that's going to happen with the pandemic. You know, I think it's a human, you know, I think uh, things haven't changed for humans since uh, Noah and the flood. Uh, historically, um, we go through bad times. Uh, and uh, we always forget the bad and start remembering the good again. It's just that's the way it is. 
I don't talk about that. I don't have any data, just my instinct. Yeah. But historically, that's the way it has always been. You know, I don't believe in paradigm shifts. They don't happen. We don't change. Uh, adjustments are made, fashion changes, technology changes, but we, we don't change. So I don't think there's going to be any difference with the urge to socialize. I know about the technology, the cell phones. I know about the dating apps and all those kind of things. Those things all kind of fit in and work with an evolving nightlife scene. They don't change it. Not to, not to my view. As a matter of fact, I'll give you a good example, uh, uh, Benji. You know, this uh, communal living and communal workspace that seems to be uh, 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 something uh, popular and current now. You know, I think that's a, a kind of outgrowth of everybody going to the office and working, not meeting very many people, mm-hmm. and going home and getting on uh, your technology and surfing and doing everything you do and don't have any human interaction. Mm-hmm. So what happens? People want communal workspaces now and they want communal living spaces. It's because those things don't change. I I don't think. Now, I'm not an intellect and I don't know, but I'm just telling you what I think. Uh, You know, uh, I don't think there's going to be any change after we get through this pandemic the same way there was no change after we got through smallpox and after we got through the Spanish flu. Uh, uh, I don't think... uh, um, I don't think there's going to be a change. I think, yes, the cell phones, you don't have the same privacy. Those are kind of details that you kind of have to kind of deal with to, to create the, the kind of environment that let people go crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let people go mad. The but, word uh, I want to pick up on in, in what you were just saying was instinct. That really struck, you know, with me because I feel like, uh, you know, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I feel like, so many of the products I've experienced of yours are the result of great instinct and going with instinct. Is that a fair thing to say? Like, and how would you recommend people apply that, with, you know, in a world where everyone's encouraged to intellectualize choice, you know? Uh, intellectualize is a sure thing of, uh, uh, of disaster. Uh, you have to feel and have an instinct for the way things are, are going. It has to have common sense, but... You know, I'm lucky. Uh, I am uh, incurably curious about everything. I am a, a, a voyeur of popular culture and everything that goes on. There are reasons that things happen. There are reasons for communal workspaces and communal living spaces. They just don't crop up on their own. And I try and think and connect the dots uh, so that it makes sense because we're on a continuum and one thing leads to another. Uh, and uh, I'm lucky enough to have good instincts. Halston had good instincts too with what he did. Uh, you know, he felt what uh, uh, people wanted, and a lot of entertainment people also, a lot of business people. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because you take somebody like uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, and he uh, he does Amazon, which is a huge success, and Walmart also tried to do all that stuff over the web. But Walmart thought that the lowest price was the only thing that mattered to people. He didn't get what Jeff Bezos understood, that it was convenience 
as well as a good price that mattered to people. So what happened is uh, there for everybody to see. It's just the kind of instinct by reading the cultural signs. We all have it. We just have to be curious about it. We have to be observant and we can't be afraid to do something that hasn't been done before. And you can't listen to anybody who tells you you're crazy to try it. Yeah. Well, that's that's one thing I really got from, you know, watching the story of, of how it was a sort of build it and they'll come kind of instinct thing when you had such a short amount of time to turn around a theater into a nightclub and whether it was like finding a solution to the license, finding a solution to, you know, not having the, the lighting designers, as you just said, and getting the theater people in. And, you know, I mean, from the highs, the highest of the highs, which you've experienced and the challenges, which you've also experienced, you know, um, if you could impart any lessons from your nightlife experience to someone that's joining us today or watching this that really wants to start their own club or their own experiential design space, um, what what might they be? Uh, don't be afraid of failure. Mm. Because if you're afraid of failure, you don't venture, you don't try, uh, you get kind of locked up. You know, it, the things that apply that resonate with the people, most of which are in the box. Yeah. Are ideas that are outside the box. Yeah. Because if you're going to give an idea and you're in the box, well, that's what everybody already has. They don't want that. They want something outside the box. They want to be led to what they think is uh, is happening. I mean, you know, when Henry Ford did the car, uh, that was an outside-the-box thought. Uh, when they invented uh, post-its or felt-tip pens, those were outside-the-box ideas uh, done by all people that thought outside-the-box. And I think when you think outside-the-box, you know, you know. I, I think uh, somebody said, I think it might have been Winston Churchill uh, that said uh, 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 a failure is it's part of success and if you're afraid of failure you'll never have success mm. Mm. it's interesting to talk about how you've pulled that into your hotels and 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 your revolutionizing of that space really um there's a quote here somewhere from um travel and leisure it is possible that ian schrager has done more to bring design to the travel experience than any other living person single-handedly reinventing the hotel as a site of electrifying cultural significance, travel and leisure. And I have to say that I would agree um, in, well, my, thank you, in my personal experience, because the first time I really uh, interfaced, I guess, like knowingly with your hotels was when I started going to Miami Winter Music Conference as a kid, like 19, 20 years old. And, and the, the sort of holy grail of places you could stay then was the Delano, of course, you know, and that was the kind of, that was the goal. You'd made it if you stayed at the Delano, but if you couldn't stay there, then you'd certainly go there for a drink or enjoy the space. And, and then I had that experience in a lot of your hotels. And I think that before that, travel and hotels, hotels were just somewhere I stayed. And then uh, through the experience of your hotels and the boutique hotel experience, they were somewhere, there were places you desired, you know, places that you, you, you were excited to stay. And so then understanding the lineage that your design and hospitality um, roots are in nightlife, as someone that's involved in nightlife, it makes perfect sense. So 
maybe we, we should use the time remaining to talk about um, how you really like brought in your experience of nightlife, of design of clubs, of, 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 of the social experiment of combining the right sort of people and how you fused that into your early hotels, which have now gone into to, to really influence everyone in, in hospitality culture? Well, really good question, Ben, I have to say. You know, the first thing is, is that um, uh, my experience uh, uh, in the nightclub helped me because I didn't really have any discernible product to sell. Mm. But the same thing everybody else had. It was only the experience that we created that distinguished us from what everybody else was doing. And uh, we realized that at that time, uh, there were uh, uh, most of the hotel companies uh, in America uh, were focused on execution, uh, you know, the best execution. Marriott's a good example of that. Uh, Walmart's another good example of that. It wasn't about experience. It was about the proficiency of execution. Uh, and there were hotels that were based upon luxuries. Uh, Claridge's, of course, and some of the great uh, London hotels and, and, and hotels in Europe and some in, the, in, in New York as well. They had luxuries. Nobody was doing anything innovative. Mm. Nobody. And that was just, we, we saw it. So we were going to do a hotel for our generation. We were going to do something based upon innovation. We weren't going to do it based upon execution. We wasn't going to do it based upon luxury. There are choices out there. We're going to do it based upon innovation, design, uh, and uh, and uh, and so on and so forth. That was the uh, the basic premise. But one thing, a lot of the uh, uh, the media thought that uh, you know my first hotel was Morgan's, which had no lobby. It was an introvert. The second hotel, Royalton, was an extrovert and had a lot of activity in the lobby because we didn't want people to pick up the Morgans and go stay in the Royalton. We wanted to have a hotel with two different personalities. And a lot of people would say, oh, we're trying to do a nightclub in the lobby. No, no, we're not trying to do a nightclub in the lobby. We're trying to provide a microcosm of the best that that city has to offer in the lobby. So all you have to do is come down from your room and go downstairs in the lobby, the best restaurant for the best bar. For that was the uh, notion, a very simplistic observation. Yeah. And, um, and that's mean, the way hotels used to be, by the way. Yeah. But the, 150 years ago. Right. Yeah, I mean the boutique experience. If even just thinking about the names of the hotels that you've been involved with, there's too many to mention: Mondrian, St Martin's Lane in London, um, Sanderson, Hudson Shore Club. I remember that opening as the sort of little brother of the Delano, kind of in a way, you know. Right, exactly. Um, exactly. And uh, all the way through to, to to public now, you know, which is your hotel in New York. Um, it's fair to say that you really have changed the way a generation thinks about travel. I think what I found quite interesting was the uh, edition hotels, um, because maybe people think of you as, uh, I don't know, whatever word they want to use, disruptor, artist, visionary in the space. And sort of like, usually that's associated with kind of very independent thought and independent business. And so, you know, a lot of independent artists, designers, musicians, 
anyone in the creative space has often tried to uh, navigate the more corporate world, whether that be major labels or big corporations. And, and, and you've really shown that it is possible to do that with that successful marriage between you and the Marriott, which I don't think anyone would have seen coming. And anyone that stayed in an edition hotel knows that it's like a Schrager experience from the music through to the drinks, through to whatever. So is there any advice for creatives, um, you know, listening to this talk of how to navigate that more kind of brutal corporate world from the experience of doing that? Well, that's the reason I got all this gray hair now. <laughs> Over the last 11 years, I think my, uh, again, lucky stroke was that the, uh, uh, the former CEO uh, of uh, Marriott, Arnie Sorensen, who we just lost, uh, loved design. Mm. And he was really a great guy. And he appreciated and respected everything, you know, that we were trying to do. And he wanted to do that. It was still bite inch by inch by inch of territory. But I, I couldn't do it any other way. I can't be involved in something that I I don't believe in that my name goes on. I take it very personal uh, and I wouldn't do it uh, because I was convinced that they, you know, they, they, they were a supporter of that. Mm. You know, the, uh, um, the idea started out that they can do what I cannot do and I can do what they can't do and was supposed to be accretive and one plus one makes three. Mm. Uh, you know, I and I try to do whatever they wanted me to do. I remember one time Bill Marriott wanted me to get dressed in a gray suit with a red tie, and he wanted to be wearing a black T-shirt. I'm not doing that, Bill. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, but they were respectful. Yeah. Uh, uh, not everybody. Some were threatened by it because I was threatening the way they normally did things. But it, it has been a great 11 or 12 years. I wanted to do it because I had never done something on a large scale like that. It was interesting. It was another mountain for me to climb. Mm. But, um, yeah, you know, if, if the product can't be great, if it can't be distinctive, mm. uh, I don't want to do it, no matter how much money is involved. It's just not about the money. It, it, it's about the satisfaction and enjoyment by doing something that you know other people think very highly of. And that's the payoff for me. I'm sure it's the same with you, Benji. Absolutely. You know, uh, Absolutely. 100%. That's the secret. If you don't have that feeling, then you're not going to be successful. It's not the money. You can't change the money. You have to do something that you love and the money comes as a consequence of that. The funny thing is you can you can write the book and you can make the movie, but the, the experience is a transient moment that you can't actually make permanent, you know. And that's really the magic, isn't it? It's creating these... Yeah, that's the magic. Because if, if somebody asked me to write a book about how I did it, I couldn't. Yeah. I don't know. It's about massing all the details. And in some moment, they all come together... They add up to more than the sum of the individual parts, and that's when the alchemy happens. And that's what happened with Disney, and that's what happened with Jobs, and that's what happens with anybody that creates something. They can't tell you how to do it, they, but they kind of know yeah. when that magic happens. You know, the, like my, my children still watch the same animated films 
that those techniques were available to anybody and everybody when Disney was doing it, but they still watched those films 70 years old and they still are moved by them and loved them. Why watching a movie 30 years old? It moves too slow. Uh, it, it doesn't seem contemporary. Uh, so it's just, if you can pull off that great product, it lasts forever. Before we hand over to questions from the forum, I just realized one question we should actually uh, get to is tipping our hat to some of the designers that you've worked with, because obviously we're, we're speaking at the VNA and, um, and this is very much about nightlife and design. I know that you've had a long relationship with John Pawson. Um, and maybe do you want to talk about some of the, whether it be architects, interior people, lighting people over the course of your career that really have had a massive impact on the way that you look at the design of things? No, well, they all have. And I think uh, uh, my choice is to work with the most talented people I could possibly find. Uh, I don't think that designers could do what we do. If they could, they would do it. They are designers. I'm not a designer. My job is to get the best work out of that designer. Uh, and uh, they all become my friends. Uh, they were all brilliant. Uh, and uh, we have close personal relationships. Uh, and they've impacted my entire life. Uh, uh, you know, the first great designer I worked with was uh, Andre Pupman uh, from France. Um, and uh, she was really a great stylist with great taste. And you can see this continuum. Uh, the next designer I chose was Philip Stark, who wasn't a stylist, but was a product designer. And when I saw a bathroom that he created in Cafe Cost in Paris that nobody knew how to use, but was <laughs> reinvented of a traditional French brasserie, well, that's what I wanted. I wanted to have a reinvention of a hotel room. Uh, and I wasn't afraid to underwrite the risk of working with a foreign designer. I thought it even gave me an edge because it wasn't available to everyone and nobody would have under, underwritten that risk because they give you uh, the plans and meters, not inches. Uh, their way of bathing is different. They like square pillows. We like rectangular pillows. But that was up to me and my team to edit that out to make sure it was appropriate where it was. Uh, working with Herzog and Demiron, who did the Tate wow. in London, are absolutely brilliant. Wow. Uh, uh, it was a very expansive thing working with them. They are really, really brilliant. Uh, uh, and uh, they don't have a look like a lot of architects do. Uh, they have um, uh, every project they start, they start all over again and come up with something uh, new. Mm. So. All these things have been expansive to me. John Pawson, uh, after going through that stage of innovation, uh, three-legged chairs that some people used to fall off of, bathrooms that you don't know how to use because I was trying to get noticed, I wanted to refine and purify and simplify uh, and uh, bring things down uh, to their uh, uh, essence. Funny, I went to John and said, John, I don't want a minimalist thing. I don't want anything that can be characterized, uh, uh, pigeonholed to characterize. I want something refined and simple that everybody can understand. And John is a real master at that. Mm. An excellent uh, taste level and uh, 
uh, for picking really sophisticated, refined materials. So those are four. All of those people have had tremendous impact on me and has been um, expansive to me. I work with Arata Isosaki, a great Japanese architect who didn't speak English uh, and who was 13 hours away in time. But my commitment to doing something great was the same commitment they had. Uh, and uh, and so that made them feel comfortable me. Just one quick thing. I remember Isosaki, who was really one of the best architects in the world. You know, I had chosen a guy to help me with the colors at the Palladium, uh, uh, which was another nightclub. And uh, I remember Iso, nickname was Iso, coming to me and saying to his interpreter, what do you mean? I picked the colors. And I said, well, Iso, this guy, he does the colors for the walls of the Metropolitan Museum. He's very sophisticated. You have to prove everything. If this thing is a great, 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 great success, we all benefit from it. If it's not as great a success, you can take all the credit for it. And, uh, you know, and so we went along with it and he approved it and it was better for it. I only care about the product. Yeah. Nothing else matters. And I think they, when they have confidence in that and they, it makes them feel comfortable around me. Mm. And so in that art of hospitality, not necessarily just luxury, but just the art of hospitality, what are the key elements? What are the top priority in the creation of these spaces? What are the things uh, well, that you take away and remember? I want to tell you how this thing has evolved. When I first got started, it was about innovation. I wanted to get noticed. I wanted people to notice me in this sea of mediocrity and uniformity. Uh, I, I, I say this, I wish somebody else would say it, but I... I still think we're the best at that, but there are other people doing it. Most of the people are doing it in just different colors. So I think the most important thing in hospitality industry right now are experience and service. Mm. Service, but not obsequious, pretentious service. Service we talked about before that gives you the freedom of time and the freedom from hassles and feel comfortable and warm about everything because we all thought when we were getting all this technology and the social media that it was going to make things easier for us. It hasn't. It's yeah. made us more harried. Yeah, yeah, we have less time than we ever had before. It's an unanticipated uh, result. So I think the freedom from hassles and the freedom of time is the ultimate luxury, not the old traditional luxury of what brand on your clothes, yeah. what car do you drive, that stuff's irrelevant. Yeah, 100%. Ian, I've, I've had a great time talking to you. Um, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. And um, I hope we can continue this conversation at Public or Edition or somewhere in the future. Hey, Benji, it was a pleasure to be with you. And it was an honor to have a conversation with you. I have nothing but the utmost respect for you and what you do. Thanks a lot, Ian Schrager. I appreciate it. I'm going to hand over to Nicole now, who has some questions from our participants. Yeah. Um, that was a wonderful discussion to listen to. The first question is asking, who designed the iconic Studio 54 logo? And was there a brief? You know, we had gone to the designer of the uh, 
the tongue and the mouth, uh, the Rolling Stones. Uh, uh, and uh, we went to a couple of other things, but the person we chose was a man called Gilbert Lesser. Uh, he was the uh, uh, promotional director of promotion for People Magazine at the time. We went out and got four or five people. We had Fiorucci submit uh, a design. Uh, we went out and got people, you know, I would take them to. I explained to him what we were trying to do. And he came through with something that, uh, you know, we liked. And we just chose them, again, by instinct. Um. The next question is, how much pressure did you feel opening the Palladium in terms of living up to studio? And did you feel, or did you feel like it was just a whole new start? Uh, with the Palladium. You know, the Palladium wasn't a new idea like studio was. The Palladium was just more, <laughs> more of everything. Uh, the uh, Studio 54 cost about $400,000. The Palladium cost $10 million. Uh, and, uh, and we didn't start out with a budget of $10 million, by the way. We were, uh, you know, we were very much, we had snipping at our heels. We have to do something better than uh, Studio 54, uh, uh, and, which is a hard act to follow. Uh, and so we overwhelmed people with all the elements we had in it, but it wasn't a new idea. Studio was the new idea. Okay. Um, the next question is, you were open six nights a week. Did you ever manage to get to any other clubs like the Loft or Paradise Garage? Hmm. Yes, I what did. I used to go out um, on uh, Friday and Saturday night, uh, mostly Saturday night. Uh, one studio turned the corner. Uh, I uh, used to go out to see what was going on uh, downtown, uh, you know, after hours clubs, uh, gay clubs, uh, uh, you know, uh, went to Larry Levan's club, uh, who, uh, it's so funny. We worked with Larry Levan, who was a great DJ, uh, Benji, but, uh, you know, when we brought him into studio, it didn't hit because he got more enthusiastic when he was in his own club. Yeah, I mean, sorry to jump in here, Nicole, but I, you know I have to, right? Because this is like, this is it. It's like the garage and 54, right? So it's like, obviously, today's talk is we've been focusing on Ian's work with Studio 54, but it, I want to know, like, the years of the garage and the years of Studio 54 and what the crossover was. And if there was, I don't know, like a relationship, a competition, um, a sort of like a Studio No 54. competition, a respect. 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 There was respect. You know, that place was jumping. Yeah. Uh, and the music was great. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and when, when Larry played down there, he was great. When we brought him up to play a couple of nights at the studio, I guess he didn't get inspired. Uh, uh, well, because there was a different, completely different crowd at the garage than the crowd that we had at the studio. But, um, you know... The, the DJs are performers, uh, and they react like performers. Uh, and uh, but but his his place was really. I'm sure to see the way you just reacted. Uh, he yeah. had he was a great DJ, and great music. Uh, and I used to go to uh, other places. Uh, I started going. Uh, it was mostly the gay clubs uh, because uh, you know they had the kind of revelry 
and tribal. You know, they were there to dance, man. Uh, and that was it. And that's what we want. That was the, the kind of club, you know, that we wanted to do. We wanted to take it uptown. We wanted to make it diverse. Uh, and we wanted to take it up a notch in, 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 in terms of uh, what we had there. More sophisticated, like not the, like uh, the garage, not, not the nightclub, but the garage phase of nightclub where you painted everything black and you put on the music. No, yeah. you're taking it to the next level. Mm-hmm. I think it's just lovely to hear such palpable joy from both of you when you're talking about club culture. It's so kind of wonderful. Um, I think the next question is, is there anyone that you would have loved to have performed at Studio 54 that didn't or anything that you would have done differently? Uh, was there anything that I would have done differently? Uh, <laughs> only what I got in trouble for. Uh, but I would have not done anything else differently. I would not have opened uh, if uh, if um, um, we weren't 100% ready. You know, now that I'm a little older, would I let some of the rich guys in? Maybe. <laughs> but only if they didn't interfere with the rest of the uh, the party. But no, I wouldn't have done anything different the way the club functioned. Uh, the only thing I would have been would have done differently is that uh, you know I I, um, I thought I had my feet on the ground uh, because I, I I had all my same friends as did Steve. Uh, we weren't moving into big fists or buying big cars or anything like that. But obviously, uh, we got intoxicated with the whole thing and and did some stupid things. I would change all of that because it it almost destroyed Steve and I. The other half of, that, half of that question, is there anyone that you would have loved to have performed at Studio 54 that you didn't manage to get? No, we wouldn't do, we, we didn't really want to do performances there because we, we did some on New Year's Eve, but th- th- that is contrary to having a nonstop dancer bottom off, sweat, nonstop sweaty dancing. Uh, and performance stopped that. Uh, and so we would never really would have wanted, we didn't really have performances as such. That's a kind of stationary, non-participatory thing. You're looking at it, you're being entertained. You know, uh, we were out for uh, uh, the uh, uh, being able to help people go mad uh, uh, and uh, making them feel, feel safe doing it. Uh, because by the way, there was nothing you could do that night that you couldn't wake up the next morning and walk away from. And so we were there for that. Uh, and um, I still, that still would be my approach. <laughs> um, we just got a question come in asking if you still go to clubs. If, uh, sorry? If you still go to clubs? Uh, no, don't go to clubs anymore, no. sorry to say. I know that's very bad for the reputation. I have five kids, I have a great wife. Uh, and, um, you know, it's so funny. I, 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 I love my work. I love what I do. I still love it. And I love my family and I have, uh, uh everything I need, everything I could possibly want. Uh, I wish I would have gotten to this point 40 or 50 years ago, but I'm happy at least that I'm at it now. Um, we've got two more questions and I think that's probably what we've got time for. 
The first is what inspired you to create Boutique Hotels, a concept that was unheard of at the time, but has since become an integral part of travel culture. No, it's so funny, uh, it's a good question. Uh, I got drawn into uh, the press were playing up the competition between Donald Trump, who was just opening up a hotel in New York, his first, and this real estate tycoon, Harry Helmsley, uh, the new generation versus the old generation. And I got very drawn into that uh, dispute. And it made me feel, hey, Steve, we can do something better uh, than both of them. Uh, and uh, that's when we decided to go in, into hotels because in a funny kind of way, it is the a progression from nightclubs where you're taking care of people, providing a great experience, looking after them. Well, that's the same thing you're trying to do with a hotel. So we felt a little bit uh, capable of that, but we, 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 we just wanted to do something that manifested my popular culture, my generation, my thinking, not my parents, who, who I love and, and honor and respect, but you know they came from, from a different time. I had a sister who was two years older than me. She was an Elvis Presley fan, and I was a Beatles fan. <laughs> you know, things change. Uh, and uh, everything changes. Change is the only constant in life. We thought there was an opportunity for a new kind of hotel. And that was that was the motivation. Seeing, seeing the gaps and filling them in. Um, the last question from me, and Benji, there probably is a little bit of time if you've got a last question as well, um, is just, have you got a standout favorite memory from Studio 54? I have a standout favorite memory from Studio 54. Yes, I um, I remember the um, the first night we opened. Uh, that uh, uh, I remember Steve whisking me out during the day to get a suit because I, I didn't have a suit, uh, and um, uh, we opened it up. and And uh, I always used to leave studio too early, and Steve always used to leave it too late. And I remember going home, you know, at one or two o'clock once I saw the night turn the corner and, and it was okay. Uh, and uh, I went home and I got a call from Steve like at five or six o'clock in the morning. He hadn't even been asleep yet. And he was telling me that we got the front page of the New York Post, a big picture of Cher uh, uh, on the cover. So that was, we did it. We did it, Steve. A very, very, very fond memory of that. Um, Benji, did you have any last questions? No, no, I, I, I'm really happy with the chat we've had and I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you, Benji. Thank you. Thanks. It's been really lovely to have you both. Thanks so much. Um, I think that brings us pretty much to a close. Uh, so if you guys want to just turn your audio and video off. Okay, um, great. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. And I'll just thank you, Benji. And thank you, everyone. And thank you to the V&A in particular. Thank you for listening. You can find more stories and resources on our website at vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee. That's vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee.